Christians all across the globe are facing adversity. In Iraq and Syria, Christian families are being driven from their homes by night, their possessions looted, their bodies broken, and their hearts discouraged. In Europe, a faithful missionary family struggles deeply to see the seed of the gospel take root in a culture that frankly sees Christianity more like a relic than a reality. In China, strict regulations continue on the printing and distribution of Bibles and the gift that many believers long for this Christmas is simply their own copy of the scriptures. In Saudi Arabia, a young man struggles as to whether or not he should tell his family about his recent conversion to Christianity after spending a couple of months in the States with a Christian family. He knows exactly what this will cost him. What should he say? Should he say anything at all? There are also Christians across the pew in this room who are facing adversity. A woman received a call, a diagnosis this week, which she was not expecting. It's cancer, stage four, inoperable. An older couple is burdened by one of their children who does not know the Lord. And while there were times when he was open to discussion, his posture is changing. He's actually becoming antagonistic toward the Lord Jesus. What do we do? Should we even continue praying anymore? College students at Youngstown State University this week are wondering what the pro-ISIS messages that were painted on the YSU rock really mean. Is this just a, a stupid joke? Or was this a serious threat? A public school teacher who longs to integrate her faith in her classroom is burdened and struggling by the fact that school policy says she can't do that. And so she lives in this tension, trying to be faithful to both her Lord and to her employer. A brother has been estranged from his family simply because of his love for the Lord Jesus. And this year, for the very first time, just a few days ago, he ate Thanksgiving dinner by himself. Christians are facing adversity. And these very real, very present adversities beg some really big questions, I think. First of which, what is God doing in the midst of all this adversity? Where is he at? What is he doing when his people are facing hard times? Is this the end of the church's growth and influence in the world? How should we respond when adversity comes knocking on our lives like thunder? Friends, it's with these questions that we humbly approach God's word this morning. So I'd like to pray for us uh, as we get started. Father, we recognize the many, many challenges facing your people today in the world. These aren't abstract stories. These are real. So I pray that you would help us this morning to respond in a way that is 
both faithful and helpful, that honors your son as we look to your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about the reality of adversity in the life of God's people, I want you to meet me in your Bibles in the book of Acts. We're going to continue on this morning through the book of Acts in our series called The Next Act. We're in Acts 14. I believe it's page 923, 923 or 25 in your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those and turn over. Acts chapter 14, and this morning... We are going to join up with the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey and take this journey with him and take a look at the adversity that we face and ways in which we can respond. Acts 14. Go ahead and follow along in your Bibles, and I will read this passage out loud in its entirety. Now, at Iconium... They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles, When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now in Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, Seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. He sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet... He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe, where they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." don't need to look very far in this account to spot adversity. So I want us to go back through this passage and check out three 
particular ways, particular types of adversity that, that Paul and his ministry team faced and, and also types of adversity that we face today. The first is the adversity of gospel opposition. Opposition to the gospel is a very real and very present form of adversity that Christians need to face and will face. For this team, it comes at their first stop, the first stop on the journey in a town called Iconium. Verse 1 tells us that the missionary team began preaching the gospel in a synagogue as was becoming their custom, but it didn't take too long for adversity in the form of opposition to strike. Verse 2, you might look at it again with me, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, the two verbs here, stirred up and poisoned, really paint the ugliness of the scene. This group of, of Jewish unbelievers incited this crowd. They stoked them up like a mob, embittering them against the missionaries. What was happening here was basically a first-class political smear campaign. It was mudslinging that will make Clinton Trump or Carson or Rubio, or whoever gets the nomination, look like a kindergarten play date. Opposition. The reason that we have to understand is because this gospel that they were preaching is an offense. It threatens the spiritual status quo. Think about it. When we are true to the full message of the gospel, we are telling people that they are at odds with God. Children of wrath, to borrow some language from Ephesians 2. We are telling them that God in his justice is going to punish sin, and by implication, that person for their rebellion against God. Try communicating that message today in a modern culture where relativism and pluralism reign supreme. Don't you know how offensive that is, what you just told me? Coming up in here talking about my sin and my offenses before God, that's offensive. You are just a classic judgmental Christian, bigoted, judgmental. The opposition continues, though, for Paul and his team in verse 4. It says, the people of the city were divided. Some siding with the Jews, some with the apostles, and when an attempt was made by both of them with their rulers to mistreat them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra. Inasmuch as the gospel unites, the gospel also divides. This mudslinging campaign that was initiated was picking up some steam. You might say it was picking up some points in the polls. And what's fascinating about the Jews and the Gentiles coming together on this issue is that historically, these are two groups that rarely, if ever, had anything to do with each other, let alone would come together to work on a project. But to oppose this scandalous gospel, they would. They would come together. And for Paul and the team, this meant that they had to move on. They had to get out of there just to avoid physical harm. And so they went about 20 miles south to a city called Lystra. Maybe this town would be different. I mean, maybe there would be more openness to the gospel. Or maybe there would be more adversity. What we see from this city is that we will also be faced with the adversity of spiritual confusion. 
Adversity in the Christian life very often manifests itself in the form of misplaced spirituality or spiritual confusion. In verses 8 to 10 here in this next city, the Lord heals a man crippled from birth. Now, surely, surely this, a tangible sign, a tangible demonstration of the validity of this message would produce the right response. I mean, it would have to, wouldn't it? The response of faith and repentance. But it would not be the case. Instead, the city erupts into spiritual confusion. Look at it again in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Zeus and Hermes are here, they said. And verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. This was not the response that Paul and Barnabas were hoping for. Now, it's very likely that the people in this city were thinking about a local legend that existed at the time, a legend that said that Zeus and Hermes had once come to this same hill country. They were seeking lodging and shelter. They went to a thousand homes. They were rejected a thousand times until finally they came upon an older couple who welcomed them in warmly. Zeus and Hermes then were said to have revealed themselves. They made their home a temple. They made them the priests of that temple, and they destroyed every home that had rejected them. So this group of people in the village, in the town, was not about to make the same mistake. Now, you might say, Chris, it's a good thing that we understand spiritual things so clearly today. I mean, that we don't believe in, in nonsense and legends and those kinds of things. We're far more advanced than that. I hope that it's not a surprise for me to tell you that we are living in a world that is choking on the dense fog of spiritual confusion. The pantheist says, God is nature, the trees and the rocks and the rivers. The hedonist says, pleasure is my God. If it feels good, do it. The individualist says, I am God. I make my own rules. I live life by my own terms. The naturalist says, well, ultimate reality is actually about what we can experience with our senses, what we can see and touch and feel. The world is, is nothing more than a, a gathering of impersonal particles. It was made that way, and it's, it's working toward that same end. The atheist says, God is nothing. He's a, a figment of your puny imagination. He's dead. The pluralist says all religions are equally valid. Spiritual confusion, absolute confusion. It's the epitome of what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world, he says, is blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel happened in Lystra, and it is happening today. We see the adversity of gospel opposition in Iconium. We see the adversity of spiritual confusion here in Lystra. And thirdly, we see from this text that we also face the adversity of Christian persecution. In some form or another, in some way or time, Christians are going to navigate the rough waters of persecution. Check it out in verse 19. 
But the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. The plan to harm Paul back in Iconium came to fruition here at Lystra. The group, the leaders that were stoked up against them, followed them to this next city. They had found a way to shut the mouth of this gospel speaker. They would stone him. These were not little pebbles like you find in gravel driveways that were soft-tossed at the Apostle Paul. No, no. These were dense, heavy objects that were hurled at Paul with great velocity, bruising flesh, crushing bone to the point where they thought they had killed him. Why would they do this to this man? Well, because he loved the Lord. Because he believed what we do, right? He believed that people need to hear and respond to the gospel if they're going to be saved. And so, as a reward, they showered him with stones in such a way that the sky was darkened over the apostle's head. A 29-year-old missionary enthusiastically rose out of bed. This was the day he had been waiting for, the day that he had been praying for for years. He and his friends were about to board a plane to Ecuador to begin a new ministry to an unreached people group called the Alcus. As they prayed and with great anticipation, they finally arrived, they set up camp at the site, and in their first couple of days, they, they didn't have much contact, only a few of the Alcus people. But even with those interactions, they were very careful to exchange friendly relations. They wanted to build long-term relationships with these people and teaching them the gospel. But on their sixth day at camp, something happened that they did not know was going to happen. Emerging from the jungle was a group of Alcus warriors with their spears in hand and raised to strike. This young missionary was said to have carried a pistol on him, although he refused to draw the weapon. And in refusing to draw the weapon, the warriors hurled their spears and killed him and his companions. This is the adversity of Christian persecution. Whether it's shunning or slander or slaughter, the worlds of the Apostle Paul ring true to his son in the faith. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's really, really cold out there. Really cold. Winter evenings drop as low as negative 50 degrees below zero. Add in winds that are whipping around at anywhere from 30 to 60 miles per hour, elevations at greater than 10,000 feet. The ground is frozen from anywhere from 10 inches all the way to three feet deep in certain areas. I'm talking about the Arctic tundra. Arguably one of the harshest environments, the harshest climates on the entire planet. And yet, amidst this flurry of adverse conditions, something is growing. This is the glacier buttercup. It's a, a fascinating little flower that has found a way in the midst of the cold and the wind and the frozen ground 
to grow. And as much as we have talked about all the adversity facing Paul and his team in Acts 14 and all the adversity that we find ourselves faced with today, something else is happening. Something impossible. Something wonderful. Amidst a flurry of adversity, the church grows. God grows the church in the soil of adversity. In the midst of opposition and confusion and even persecution, God is still at work. He's not abandoned or left his people. In fact, he grows the church in the soil of adversity. And that means that our approach to adversity and our response to adversity has got to be informed by this idea that God is still at work. And so let's take a look at a couple of ways that we can respond in parallel with the types of adversity that we looked at earlier. First, we can find opportunity within opposition. Gospel opposition provides and even produces gospel opportunity. You might remember that slanderous smear campaign back in Iconium in verse 2. I want you to look back in your Bibles at the surprising response of this crew. In verse 3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. The little word so is really important. It's the same word that can be translated other places as the word therefore, which means the opposition actually produced the response, the opportunity for more gospel ministry. The team remained there, the text says, and spoke boldly, boldly for the Lord. It's said that John Wesley once encountered a bully along a road that provided the entrance into a town where he wanted to go and preach the gospel. Now, this bully knew about Wesley and hated him. And so as their carriages approached one another on the road, the bully would not give way an inch on either side of the road, which, of course, caused Wesley, if he was going to get by, to go off into the ditch, go the hard way around, which he gladly did. And as they passed, the bully looked right at Wesley, and he said, I do not give way to fools. And Wesley, all five foot two of him, calmly responded, that's okay, I do. Gospel boldness, finding opportunity within opposition. Now, boldness does not mean reckless, to clarify. It is, it's also helpful for us to see the wisdom of this team's departure from the city at the appropriate time. In other words, they weren't going around looking for trouble. They weren't trying to find adversity for adversity's sake. No, they, they exercised opportunity within that opposition and exercised wisdom in the process. Another way that we can respond to adversity is by bringing clarity amidst confusion. Because God does grow the church in the soil of adversity, we have the chance to bring clarity, spiritual clarity, amidst all of this spiritual confusion. That's what Paul and Barnabas did in Lystra when the crowd attempted to worship them. You might turn your page and look at verse 15 with me. Paul responds to this group, men, why are you doing these things? 
We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth. In the midst of this spiritual haze, Paul makes an appeal. He makes an appeal to God's common grace, to natural revelation, and he calls this group of people to turn from vain idols to the one true God. What was he doing? He was bringing clarity amidst the spiritual confusion. And there is, there is just so much rich application that we make, can make out of Paul's example. First, uh, he, he demonstrated a real posture of humility, didn't he? We'll look past those words. We're just men. We're just, just messengers bringing you good news. Paul did not take the bait of flattery. He maintained a, a humble posture. And yet in maintaining that humility, he was also honest, was he not? He was honest enough to say in his humility, turn from these vain things, which was a bold statement because what Paul was basically saying is that the religion that your daddy and his daddy before you and his daddy before you taught you is nothing, it's vain. So he told them the truth. He told them the truth in a posture of humility. And the other thing that Paul did was he understood his audience. Notice that his appeal was not to fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament. This group would not have understood that. Rather, he found a common point with them. He appealed to God's clear fingerprints in creation, to the common grace of God in providing rain and sun. This doesn't mean that Paul altered his message, only his method. John Stott offers a, a real helpful clarification. He says, we have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus, nor is there any reason to do so. But we have to begin where people are to find a point of contact with them. Spiritual clarity. As you leave the parking lot this morning, even though it looks like it's a beautiful day, I want you to do something for me. I want you to turn on your windshield wipers in the Canfield Police Department that sees all of you driving down the street with your wipers on are going to wonder what we did in here this morning. But I want you to, to turn on your windshield wipers. The reason is because that's a part of your car that I think we probably take for granted. And contrary to our assumption, the windshield wiper was actually not invented with the automobile. So you might imagine what it would be like to drive around a snowy day in Canfield with no windshield wipers. Mass confusion. This is a kind of experience that uh, a young woman had when she visited New York in 1902. She was in the city and couldn't help but notice that once the weather really turned nasty, the city erupted into mass confusion as the automobiles tried to navigate the snowy roads and the conditions without any clarity. That trip actually inspired her to return home and along with the help of a designer, invent windshield wipers. You are a windshield wiper in a world of spiritual confusion. You have the opportunity this week, this afternoon, to provide someone with some spiritual clarity. In a confused culture that ranges everywhere from atheism, there is no God, to pluralism, everybody is right, you have the opportunity to wipe away the dense fog of spiritual confusion and provide some clarity to point people to Jesus with humility and with wisdom and with honesty. Finally, because God grows the church in the soil of adversity, we can demonstrate perseverance. 
through persecution. We can and must hang in there and hold on when persecution comes our way. What happens after Paul's stoning is nothing less than remarkable. Take a look at it. Verse 20, after he's left for dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. That little phrase, but the disciples gathered around him, is a beautiful picture of how God allows us to persevere through persecution together. You might imagine one group of disciples away from the scene, huddled together, praying for Paul, praying for the church. Another group attended to his broken body, watching carefully over him. And then upon seeing him regain consciousness, they motioned to two brothers to come and to pick him up off the ground, to put his arms around their neck and to walk gently beside him to a safe place back in the city. You want to know how to endure persecution? You do it together with the church, as the church, God's people together. It's also remarkable what Paul and the team does as they return to these cities. Look at verses 21 and 22. When they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, and they preached the gospel to that city. Strengthening, verse 22, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, if we want to persevere well, we've got to stick to the task, friends. We've got to keep our hand on the plow when we are weary and weak and sometimes relying on the strength of others. We still stay committed to the task. We speak the gospel We make disciples. We strengthen one another. And yes, we even realize, verse 22, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We mustn't sidestep adversity. Otherwise, as Derek Thomas puts it, those who miss the hardships of the cross will also miss the prizes of the kingdom. Less than two years after the death of that young missionary in Ecuador, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, reestablished contact with that village and was even invited to come and to stay with them, the village where her husband, Jim, was murdered. What? What happened? God grew the church in the soil of adversity. The gospel took root. Many in this tribe turned to Jesus. And for a period of years afterwards, Elizabeth Elliot actually lived and ministered among these people. We might say she returned to the city. We might say that she stayed, strengthening the souls of the disciples, verse 22, encouraging them and saying that through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom And its king is Jesus Christ. The king who endured opposition. Opposition from the ones that he came to save, interestingly enough, to bring those 
who live in opposition to God back into a right relationship with him. Through opposition, he brings reconciliation. The king. The king who embodies spiritual clarity, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1 tells us. And the one who endured more persecution than we could ever imagine, even unto death. And yet this king, through persecution, would triumph over death. He would rise from the grave. And now this king offers us his spoils over death if we would simply believe and trust in him. This is the king. This is his kingdom, the kingdom that is coming. And the way is through many tribulations. Christians across the world are facing adversity. Christians across the pew are facing adversity. But our great hope this morning is that God grows the church in the soil of adversity. This doesn't mean that we recklessly pursue adversity, but it also frees us from fleeing from it in fear. We really can find opportunities within opposition. We can bring clarity amidst confusion, and we can demonstrate perseverance through persecution. Because God still, even today, grows the church in the soil of adversity. With that, let's pray together. Father, these are not often promises that we are eager to claim. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They, to our admission and our shame, are often verses that we like to forget about as we live comfortably here in the West, in our nice homes, among our nice families, and yet we know that there is real adversity in our lives. And so I do pray that you will help us to not only see, but to really embrace that the church of Jesus Christ, the next act kind of church, is a church that is willing to grow in the soil of adversity. And so I pray that you would do that, Father. I pray for all of those Christians this morning who are facing that adversity, abroad or here in this room, I pray that you will bring great comfort to them, that you would remind them that you have not left, that you have not forsaken them, that you would remind them that they are not left paralyzed in the midst of their adversity, that they can find opportunity, that they can bring clarity, that they can endure. I pray that there would be a sense of encouragement, Father, that comes today. God, you are our God, and we will trust in you and not be shaken. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught us afresh this morning to say it is well. It is well with my soul. With that, let's stand and sing together. <laughs>